History, Lecture 126, Rabbi Blaiweiss. We are in the middle of doing a survey of modern events, mostly having to do with war and terrorism in Eretz Israel. Um, when we last left our heroes, the, uh, the Israelis had just signed a peace treaty with Jordan in 1994. Um, oh, no, not true. Actually, um, the Second Intifada had just broken out in um, the October of 2000 for the next several years. Um, with the, uh, not really the, the, it was a chiddish year, but the increasing conviction on the side of the Arabs that violence works, and it always has for them. It's been, it's, it's, it's done, it's gotten them various, it gained them whatever, uh, certainly, certainly cathartic release, but more than, more than that, they get, they have political gain as a result of it. I mean, it intimidates Jews, and yeah. How do suicide bombings? Yes. Oh, around this time, I'm going to get into it. I, I am going to get into it. Um, yeah, and I, we we see that. In other words, in other words, it was now with we always have the advantage of perfect historical hindsight, so we can see this. It was it feels inevitable that they would come to this. The notion of a suicide bomb uh, that we're going to see this the first what we would now recognize as suicide bombing. I mean, to the kamikazes from the Japanese in World War II, but it, as a modern tool uh, in the hands of uh, Palestinians, particularly, was in the was 1960s and 70s. Against innocent people, too, not, not so. Right, against civilians, that you started to emerge really in 2000, in the Second Intifada, as, as, as a major, you know, an Arab strapping explosive to himself and walking into Sparrow Pizza Shop on the corner of Jaffa and King George, which is one that comes to mind. Are you familiar, are you familiar with some of these episodes? I mean, in that one, the um, the Dutch family, the family that made Aliyah from Holland, um, I was exactly the father. Um, as the bomb was going off, I guess there were two seconds uh, that people can think and, and, and do, and, and he screamed to his wife and children, "Quick, say Kriyashma." I mean, it was evident what was happening, and and he and, and indeed he and his wife, and I think um, I don't know how many, many of the children perished. And many of them are survivors. And, uh, who heard the story? Who heard, who heard the story that he said? Uh, the survivors. And some of the children survived. And uh, others survived too. Uh, I, it's totally irrational. I'll say this. I'll admit this right now. It's totally irrational that some terrorist activities, some, some wars speak to us more than others. And somehow are more, I don't want to say celebrated, but it's more remembered and more... more um, more tefillah is poured out on, on certain victims other than others. Uh, it's terribly unfair and random of us, which is we're, we're guilty as charged. Humans are emotional, uh, irrational creatures. And um, yeah, certain events make for more poignant stories, so you hear about them more. As uh, you've heard me say this before about last summer, the three boys, suddenly that became a rallying cry, but around the same time a woman was murdered in Afula, Barely, barely got any press. Nobody really heard about it or talked about it or really cared about it. I don't know why one more than the other. As, Gemara, as, as, as Chazal expressed, you know, we don't know whose blood is redder than whose. We certainly care about every Jewish life. Um, in August and September of 2005, uh, this had been building for quite some time, but I'm just jumping to the end. Um, under, now was Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, Israel unilaterally withdrew from the Gaza Strip. Remember, the Gaza Strip was an area conquered by um, Israel in the Six Day War from the Egyptians. The Egyptians, as far as they were concerned, good riddance. Gaza Strip already then was a um, popul populous, densely populated area filled with refugee camps, uh, squalor, um, hardship, 
and uh, didn't change so much over the years. It was, it was therefore a hotbed of terrorist activity. Um, Jews in the settler community would settle there and build, um, build an extraordinary infrastructure. I, I visited there just a few months in 2005, just a few months before the withdrawal, and it was um, awesomely impressive what they built, not just in terms of beautiful communities and shuls, gorgeous shuls, beautifully designed. Some of the Jews who had been um, in the Amit, in the, in the, in the um, a, a settlement down in the Sinai, and then they forcibly withdrew those Jews from the Amit when they gave it back to when they gave it to Egypt in the Camp David Accords. Um, so they had resettled in Gush Katif in the Gaza Strip, and again these same people would be evacuated from there. I do encourage. I think it's worthwhile that you visit the museum that I mentioned yesterday in Machane Yehuda uh, that's dedicated to this. There's no question. I mean, they, they say they have to say that they, they have no bias. They're just they're presenting a presenting the story. But come on, of course there's a bias. All of us have biases. Admitted at least. Um, it's clearly a right-wing place trying to tell you the story, but I, I have to say, and you heard, you know me now, that I don't identify with their cause per se. I think they're misguided. I don't think they're going with Dastaira. And yet, when I see the movie and I see the um, filmed footage of the withdrawal of the surges dragging the people from the shul as they're singing songs, as they sit with their arms locked, uh, and, and the soldiers forcibly, the soldiers were crying, and I'm a basket case when I'm watching the movie. It's terribly sad. I remember the campaign leading up to it. Um, people did not believe that it was going to happen. The bumper sticker for the right-wing protesters was Yehudi lo megaresh Yehudi. A Jew doesn't um, ex exile another Jew. It doesn't kick out another Jew, from, from certainly from Eretz Kodesh, whether Gaza is actually the Holy Land or not, we, we mentioned before is a question. But um, the Jews don't kick out Jews, which is a loaded idea if you have any sensibility in Jewish history. We've been kicked out of every land we've ever lived in. But Jews don't kick out Jews. And I remember thinking after, after the withdrawal in August, and then you know, really it happened in August, it happened in a couple of days, um, my thought when I saw those bumper stickers was, well, apparently we do. Uh, and, and, and they did, but um, the results were really, really very tragic. Um, let me just say a couple points and then and, and, and you'll chime in. The, um, there were a few hotheads, interestingly, mostly not from the Gaza Strip itself, right-wing settler types who like to make mischief, uh, I mean, which is not true of all right-wing settler types. Many of them um, are not like this. Most of them are not like this, but some of them are rebel rousers wanting to make trouble, wanting to tussle with soldiers and make a fight, and they went down to Gaza for the occasion and did make mischief, but the overwhelming majority of the actual settlers were uh, remarkably restrained, dignified, and left their homes, but you have to realize with these people, it's not just their homes, it's their whole ideology. It's their whole worldview and beautiful homes. I mean, they built the whole, they built, I mean, uh, just for example, they had, um, they had the, the, the uh, what's it called, the um, agriculture, the, um, no, 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 hydroponics. Hydroponic agriculture, uh, 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 you know, above ground, so that that's why Gush Katif today is synonymous with bugless because they're able to grow it in such a way so that the fruit and vegetables are, aren't infested with bug, bugs. And so very cutting edge, beautiful things. And immediately when they withdrew, most of the Jewish settlements were then destroyed. The, riot, the rioting Arabs came in, and rather than save the, uh, the, the, those, the, those, those greenhouses for their own use and make an industry out of them, no, better just destroy them. That was the logical thing to do for them under the circumstances, just destroy everything the Jews had built up. As a, as a destroy the memory, they turned the, uh, some of the shuls are turned into um, barns where you have pig pens, literally, or cow, cow dung, uh, chicken, chicken, chicken excrement at the bottom of the shuls as a deliberate spit in the face of the Jews. Um, 
Yeah. So, so, um, but these people had invested their, their their heart and soul into 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 the settlement, and they're dragged away. Um, till today, it's ten years later. Um, some of these um, Jews have not been treated properly by the government and don't have not been given alternate housing. They themselves, I mean, it's not like they're not in refugee camps, hardly, but they're um, they're living often impoverished. Their 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 financial lives a shambles, and the government really hasn't taken care of them. That's part of the story. I have to say, because I'm trying to get the whole picture as far as I understand it, I also think that that's a, that's a story, how much of it is true and how much is it that it's willed into being that some of them maybe could have gotten out of a situation, but it's preferable to them politically to be the tragic refugees of Gaza and to not have built their lives back up again. One wonders if it wasn't a political thing if some of them would be doing much better today than they really are. Did you follow that? So I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe that's cynical and it's not fair to them. And I think some of them, the government really was not okay. But I know also the government really did invest money in trying to resettle them. Many of the other, many of the former Gaza residents have picked themselves up and are, and, and uh, you know made new lives for themselves. Um, but uh, it's it's a dark chapter in Israel's history. Uh, uh, um, again, I, and I'm not into the the whole settle or not settle Gaza ship or not. But the, the 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 tragedy of Jews having to do this. Um, the long term fallout also is it's not even clear that it was uh, from anybody's perspective advantageous. Even the left wing celebrated it because you know the sentiment was who wants the Gaza Strip? Let's just get out of there. It's a mess. Well, that was true, but it's no better today. Today now it's a sovereign area that they use as a launching pad to attack Israel. And we've had several wars already in the last few years, including last summer, and again, Hamas is simply just regrouping and planning the next one, who knows what it's gonna be. Hopefully Mashiach will come first. But, um, but the end result was when the Israelis withdraw, that's the, that, that's then used as a launching pad to attack everybody around there. And everybody living around Okef Gaza, everybody living in those, those, those communities in the southwest of Israel are bombarded on a regular basis. It's such a regular occurrence that, they, that they're, that they're um, even when it's not a wartime, there's a steady war of attrition where they're constantly shelling them. Most of the shells miss their target intentionally. That's what Hamas is trying to do. They're trying to wear away at the nerves of the people living around there. And of course, they're, the missile range broadens with every year that passes. So in the first war, they only got in the immediate area around there. Eventually, they got to Ashkelon, to Beersheba, to Tel Aviv in the last one, Haifa, as far as in, in Jerusalem. Uh, so, so it's it's very much it's it's wearing away. It's echo. It's, it, it reflects what what um, happened five years earlier with the withdrawal from Lebanon. That um, the Arabs see this as an invitation to fight more, whereas the left would have said if we withdraw from their territory, they'll make peace with us. Quite the opposite seems to be happening, and so people have reconsidered. Maybe it wasn't a good thing to evacuate Gaza after all, and um, the jury's still out about all of these dynamics. Terribly complicated, tragic situation that Klal Yisrael finds itself in in, in modern Israel. Go ahead. What were we going to say before? Well, well, two things. One, my uh, when I was last in Israel, I, um, one of my counselors took here. At least you could say in Eretz Israel. I mean, we're referring to the, you know, the, the state, the secular dynamics, and the wars you have in Israel, but you know, when being in this country, we're in Eretz Israel. Well, technically, I wasn't, though. Oh, fair enough. So oh, wait, so go ahead. I, I went to, uh, one of my counselors took me to the Gaza Strip right to the edge. Okay, fine. And he pointed out that he actually lived in, uh, in the, one of the territories of Gaza uh -huh. when it was 
he got a basket. He was evacuated. And then he said, he, like, he pointed out where his house was. Yeah. And it was one of the bombing, like, it was one of the places that the terrorists shot rockets from. Oh, right, right. So these irony, like, bitter, bitter ironies of history. And, and uh, you, go ahead. Oh, no. You want to say second point? So let me, let me, yeah. let me riff on that. Um, during my tour of Gaza a few months before the withdrawal, the heat's not good. Um, the, um, we got a tour with one of the leaders of the settlement, settlement uh, program, and he was speaking adamantly that he is never leaving Gaza. It's not happening, it's just a ruse. Sharon will not have the guts to do it in the end, and he was absolutely certain that it would not happen, and he would not let it happen. Uh, in the end, he, it did happen. You know, with all of their confidence and so on, it, it, it was, um, I don't know, I, I, I feel for the man. That, that was clearly his life's uh, values. I feel for him, but I'm also bothered by it. Because for some of the people, it's so much the centerpiece of their values. Um, I, I can't vouch for this exactly. I know people who know people, and therefore I don't know if this is really true, but I believe it could be true, that there were people of this ideology who were so disillusioned with the withdrawal, who were so shocked that a Kaddish Baruch Hu would permit them to be dragged from their land, that it caused them to lose Amunah. And, or at least it weakened and challenged their Amunah. How could a Kaddish Baruch Hu do this to us? Which then makes you wonder about the whole ideology. The Ashkaf is skewed. We know Kaddish Baruch Hu, we know that called the Abid Rahman al whatever Hashem does is for the best. If your whole life is dedicated to the settlement of these, the settling of these conquer territories, whatever, the land, the, 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 the difficult uh, areas of the land of Israel in the modern day, um, and then that somehow subverted, your, your project is subverted, will that be a crisis of the moon? It shouldn't be. If you really were a believer, maybe your, maybe your Torah wasn't proper Torah to begin with then. You have a, a kind of a, a skewed, I wouldn't say idolatrous exactly, but, but, uh, but um, distorted perspective in life. Yes, what's the second point you were Why did Israel want Gaza? Like it well, it depends on whose it depends on whose perspective. From the right wingers' perspective, you've heard me say this before. Um, first, Gaza, tomorrow Tel Aviv. Meaning, wherever we are, where we have land that was legitimately conquered, especially Six Day War, defensive war. No, let me just say, but those who wanted Gaza are coming from this perspective of everything. We want everything because the Arabs recognize strength. So therefore, whatever land that we have and that we want in a defensive war, we have to assert ourselves and, and take it proudly. And that was the settler uh, perspective, and, that's, and that, that's that perspective. But many Jews didn't want Gaza. That's exactly the point. They were thrilled to get rid of it. They thought that if we withdrew unilaterally, and they, I don't know who they are exactly, there's, there are many different days there. I don't know, Ariel Sharon, I think, was, was, was uh, my assessment of his uh, leadership of the country was that he was, he was simply uh, uh, a political hack who was ultimately concerned, he was neither right-wing nor left-wing, he just did whatever was expeditious for himself, for his own political fate. And this was just the thing that he was doing, to, but it made no sense. But from the left-wing, or the central left, that saw the withdrawal of Gaza as a good thing, their perspective was, oh good, we'll get out of there and our troubles will stop, and we won't hear from Gaza anymore, not realizing that Gaza would be the source of ongoing angst, and we would hear from them and how. No, no, why did we conquer it to be Oh, it was part of the plan. If you conquer all the Sinai Peninsula, well, Gaza, if you look geographically, was right is, is part of it. It's part, and, and in a sovereign nation, you want continuous land. You don't want there to be suddenly in, in the middle of uh, you know Jewish territory uh, an enclave of hostile Arabs. It doesn't work well. It's a time. It's a ticking bomb. So so you, you have it. 
Now today, after giving back to Sinai, then already it's no longer in the middle of Jewish settlement, so then you can give Gaza back, but it's right next to you. I mean, you know, we're overlapping with, <laughs> literally, we're overlapping. I mean, you, our, anybody who didn't see that, uh, Aaron just pointed literally next door where we just came, we were just uh, by Shimon and Tzadik in East Jerusalem, and uh, right, but it's not just here, it's almost anywhere you go in this country, you're a hop, skip, and a jump from the nearest Arab village and often not friendly Arab village. Sometimes friendly, but not necessarily, and usually not. Complicated, wow. What a thing to live here. I mean, I know people who made Aliyah full of all this you know, beautiful, naive idealism, and after just being here, just being exposed to just how tricky and complicated life is, people go running back to, you know, suburban Chicago, San Fernando Valley. You know, just so much life is so much easier. You know, who needs the ongoing daily tension? I mean, no wonder, at least culturally, Israelis smoke less than they ever did. Now the smoking is going out, but the pressure cooker of life here um, takes a toll on a person. There's a, an, uh, we haven't really talked about this, but you know there's a phenomenon of, year, of ongoing yirida, if making aliyah is moving to Israel, so making yirida is going down, leaving Israel. Uh, and and um, many Israelis, especially secular Israelis whose values are materialistic, come to the conclusion very reasonably from their own standards, who needs this? I could do just as well and be much happier in, the, in Woodland Hills. I mean, which, is, which is a major, con- I mean, you, know, you know Israelis in Woodland Hills, no? Right, a lot of Israelis, and why not? It's, it's, California's got a similar climate to, to Israel, so you know, yeah, you got a lot of Hebrew speakers. I, I remember being floored, uh, driving around to San Fernando Valley, and I turned on the radio, and, I, and it was, the station that came on was Hebrew speaking. And I thought it was, it was like an out-of-world experience. Like, well, I'm sorry, I thought I left Eretz Yisrael, and I'm in, I'm in San Fernando Valley, and no, there wasn't an actual Hebrew radio station. You can understand, you understand the perspective. Um, I, I think I did tell you at the beginning of the year in Olpan, the, um, being a Yoreid, or to be Yordin, people who, as opposed to Olim, people who left Israel, is a stigma. You feel bad. You're, you, you've abandoned ship. <coughs> you know, you've left the cause. Many self-respecting Zionists, you know, that's a terrible thing to do. Um, so many of them, their, their attitude is, well, we're coming back. We're just here temporarily making our fortune. We'll go back and so on. And um, somebody gets in an elevator in Woodland Hills and um, wasn't sure whether it was going up or down and realized, recognized everybody in there as being formerly Israeli and so dispensed with English and just asked in Hebrew, Yodim, are we going down? To which everybody in the elevator said, Lolo, Lolo, Lolo. Not me, not me, not your dad, no, no, just temporarily here. Summer of uh, 2006, um, Hezbollah, newly empowered uh, and, and, and galvanized, especially after the uh, embarrassing Israeli withdrawal in 2000, fired rockets, something that was inevitably going to happen, from Lebanon into northern Israel for 34 grueling days. Uh, I remember guiding Sfat right afterwards and seeing the wreckage, the terrible, terrible, and all through the north you saw uh, the, um, evidence and, and um, of what was happening. Israel retaliated. There was, in the, at the end of the 34 days, over 1,000 Lebanese people died, mostly civilians, and Hezbollah had very little regard for its own people's lives, so they fired many of the rockets from villages. Um, one million Lebanese people became displaced. They lost their homes. Um, Lebanon's civil infrastructure was severely damaged. Big deal. 
165 Israelis died. So again, you have the, uh, this, again, this, this ongoing issue of the excessive force that Israelis look. A thousand people died in Lebanon, and only 165 died in Israel, which obscures the fact that this was, Israel was defending itself. Israel didn't start this war. Uh, and that the Hezbollah deliberately used the, uh, the, the, the Lebanese as human shields, and which is what Hamas does and what many of them do. And it, it's, it's very wise pro as, as propaganda because you can get away with it. The world sympathizes with you and not with the victim, not with the Israelis. Um, and again, the perception that Israel overreacts and they're the, they're, they're tyrant, they're the, they're the Nazis, they're the oppressor, the occupier, um, even when they're on the defensive. Um, during this war, I'm going to tell a little anecdote that I don't think is so small, and I think it also paints a picture. We haven't really talked about the very large number of um, Arab citizens who actually have Israeli citizenship. Most of them um, took that from the advent of the state. They were offered if they were, especially in the areas uh, that were conquered in 1948, they were offered citizenship, and, they, and, and many of them did take it indeed. And um, they've had representation in the Knesset. Um, for the first time ever in this last round of elections, the Arabs, can you believe it, are also divided among themselves. And so they've had historically usually three different uh, political parties very much at odds with one another. And in a, in a shocking display of unity, really unexpected if you follow it, if you follow this, they got together. And therefore, when you unify, you usually can get more votes. And they did. They got more votes than ever. Um, in the Crescent Knesset, they now have, is it 13 or 14? I think it's 14 um, Knesset members, which is unprecedented. Um, but it also reflects that there are 14 Arab Knesset members. Well, to be fair, to be fair, uh, they have, I think it's just one Jew, maybe two Jews on their list who are obviously very left-wing communist in orientation and identify as more Arab than Jew, but they're technically Jewish on the Arab list, and there's some Arabs on Jewish list. You know, there's an Arab in Likud who's obviously very right-wing in favor of the Jewish state. So, you know, they, they, that, that, that's another facet of politics. But in any case, you could have 14 people representing the Arab interests in a, in a state of 120 Knesset members. You see that the Arab population is important. Um, you know that only three quarters of the population of Israel is Jewish. Most of the remaining 25% are Arab. So I want to, and, and who are these Arabs and what is their feeling about Israel, I think is conveyed in the following uh, piece of business from 2006. One of their Knesset members, a fellow by the name of Azmi Bishara, Christian Arab, Christian Arab, you know, most of the Arabs in Israel are, are, Muslim, are Sunni Muslims, but there is a minority of Christian Arabs. He served a party called the Balad. Um, his ideal, ideological descendant is, do you follow politics here? If I say the name Hanin Zawabi, that means anything to you? Too? The, the woman who says a lot of picante, controversial things, to say, to say the least. Anyway, she's, she's now the new Azmi Bishara, but in any case, Azmi Bishara uh, was a Balad party member um, who was part of the government, and he was caught and was proven about him that as part of the government, he had access to secret classified information that he delivered to the state, to Hezbollah, to the enemy, uh, about strategic Israeli locations that where they could be, and, and that the Hezbollah used to target those locations by rocket attack. This was during the 2006 war. Um, he was paid handsomely, huge sums of money. What he did, 
in almost any book of civil law would be classified as high treason, which many countries in the world would consider a capital offense. Kill the guy for it. He's a traitor. He's a danger to the state. He's a danger to the welfare of the, of the being. So this is somebody who was, who was think of the, the, the immense irony of somebody who was elected to serve a, a country and he used his position as an elected member in order to destroy that country, giving over this classified information to, to an enemy during wartime. Um, he fled. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's alive and he fled and today he lives in Qatar very comfortably. Qatar being one of the rich oil state, tiny oil, uh, Arab oil states. Um, he represents among other things, um, what's going on with the Arab population in Israel. He also represents one of the flaws of democracy, people who get too enamored of democracy. Democracy is, democracy is not necessarily a Jewish value, um, and people get so swept up in the perks of democracy that they often overlook its, its glaring problems, its setbacks. Um, one of them is if everybody gets a free vote, what if you have people in your midst who are a cancer in your midst, who are trying to subvert your existence? like Azmi Bishara. Um, he was a hero among most Arab Israelis. So lest you think that it was just his example, he was elected by the Arabs, and the Arabs hold by him predominantly. Not everybody. I said there are exceptions. And there, there's an Arab in the, in the Likud as well. So lest, lest I paint two broad strokes, brush strokes here, but um, if generally, I think you can make this statement, over the years, Arabs, since the founding of the state, with Israeli citizenship, have increasingly identified as Palestinians, they identify with the Palestinian cause against Israel, and they find themselves in an increasing paradox. On the one side, they enjoy, arguably, the highest material standard of living with the greatest civil rights as Arabs in almost the entire Middle East. You compare their lives with what's going on almost anywhere, certainly in Syria today, but Jordan, anywhere in the immediate vicinity, um, they have a whole civil infrastructure, they have elections, they have medical um, services provided, they have roads and garbage collection, they have a, 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 a potential for a comfortable middle class existence, univer uh, advanced university education, and um, they recognize that and enjoy it too. Um, they sometimes, correctly complain of discrimination, meaning compared to other Israelis, sometimes they don't get their fair equal rights. That well may be, but compared to their cousins across the border, they're faring much better. And so they simultaneously enjoy their advantaged position as Israeli Arabs and simultaneously work towards the destruction of the state that gives them this nice lifestyle. And they might even recognize that, but they'll, I've had somebody explain it to me, there's a difference between your intellect and your emotions, and their emotions ultimately carry them. Their intellect recognizes the advantages, but emotionally, they hate Israel, and they would feel vindicated if it was destroyed. I think the example of Azmi Bashar is terribly important and not, not well known and not appreciated. In late 2008, early 2009, I was a Rebbe in Orsamath already, remember this very distinctly, um, another war broke out. They came up with what I claim is the worst name, ethnic names to all these wars, right? So this one was Operation Cast Lead. Well, it's not much better in Hebrew either. Mivza Elferet Metsuka. 
No, it does not trip mellifluously off the tongue, that one. The, uh, in any case, uh, bad name and bad war. Um, similar dynamic, Israel finds itself retaliating, this time against Hamas militants who are attacking them from the Gaza Strip. Uh, many at this point already, three years after the withdrawal, start questioning the wisdom of the withdrawal. Um, in this particular round of fighting in the winter of 2008-2009, well over a thousand Arabs died, in contrast with 13 Israelis. Same, same, same uh, dynamic. Israel is uh, called out for what their cl the claim is deliberately targeting civilians. Um, Hamas cleverly promotes this. Uh, there is, as I said, a daily low simmer of rocket fire from Gaza into Israel. You ever visit, let's say, Steyrot? Steyrot is on right there, right outside of Gaza, and they're traumatized there. I visited there, and there was actually uh, an attack while we were visiting Steyrot, and um, the siren that goes on is not the typical siren that you hear going around in Israel. Have you been in one of these attacks? Were you here last summer? Or you've heard the news, maybe? You've, you've, or you, maybe you saw something like this? The sound is it's a, little bit just, it's a little bit jarring. I mean, I have to say, because we had it last summer, and we all went into Rivka and Khana, my, 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 my young girl's room. That's the Maimat, that's the that's the, uh, the, the, the sealed room. And we were there, and we were all very calm. One of my daughters takes it hard, the other one of my daughters takes it hard, but uh, Rivka and Khana knew what was, you know, something's not great. And so the other day, when there was the other, it's a different sound, but you have to be mature to recognize the different sound when they put the siren on for the, uh, the, 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 the no, this time it was the, it was the uh, soldiers, the the for the, for the soldiers and the, the terror victims. Um, so I remember my, one of my daughters, my little girls, screamed, terrified, because she now, re now she recognized siren's not a good sound. So that sound, was such a regular occurrence in um, in Stay Road and in all those places that the kids have PTSD. They have they, they suffer post traumatic stress disorder, and they change the siren now instead of a blare. They have a calm man and or woman's voice instructing people what to do. Now we'd like to say everybody should proceed to your shelter, your bomb shelter. You should go, stay calm, take a book. You know, soothing tones, good messages. And apparently they found, after, after experimenting, that, that that went better. But th th that's the reality of life around Gaza these days. Um, there would, again, be this attack from last summer with greater intensity. Seemed to me, uh, excuse me, I skipped. The same round happened in 2012, and again last summer, 2014. And it becomes so frequent that you kind of lose track. Because which one was that? And it all feels like it's the same, and it's ongoing, and it stops and it starts. They all have vague, tragic names. They all have vague, terrible names for it. It seemed to me, however, there may have been at least one change with last summer, maybe, in the, in the, in the international press. And that is increasingly recognizing the cynical use of human shields by the Arabs. That's, uh, especially in America, that's, that's becoming more understood that when you see the numbers, you really can't just see the numbers alone. You really have to see the bigger picture that the, um, and, uh, the President of the United States even made reference to it, that, that the, um, the, the Arabs killed their own for the sake of the war. And they're the ones who are the murderers, not the Israelis. It was by putting their children and old people on the firing lines, they, they, they infected their and own. And the hospitals. And the hospitals, yes, exactly. Um, the idea of the war of attrition to demoralize Israelis is effective. Israelis leave. They, 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 they get to a certain saturation point and can't take it anymore. 
Um, if you're ideologically motivated to stay, then you come and you, and you stay and you put up with it. Um, I, I uh, repeat what I said yesterday because it seems to me this is the meta theme. The complex no-win position in the world is interpreted by the Torah world as a fulfillment of many of the predictions of the Klolos, where no solution will present itself in the political, economic, military, sociological arena. The only solution would seem to be spiritual, which I think is increasingly the reality, not that Jews necessarily recognize that. Um, in, 19, in 2006, Hamas kidnapped a soldier. They actually, Arabs have kidnapped people with good effect over the years. This one was arguably the most famous celebrated case. His name was Gilad Shalit. Um, and for similarly, what I claim, not ambiguous, not, not arbitrary reasons, but unfair reasons, he became a more celebrated cause uh, than many. Of the, of the kidnap. I mean, your heart goes out to any of these individuals. Uh, they're all Kadoshim. We call Yisrael Arabim Zebazeh. If a Jew's in trouble, then we daven for them and we care about them like our own shit, like our own son, our own brother. But in this case of Gilad Shalit, probably, seems to me at least, this is my take on the, on, the, on, the, on the event, the reason why that one got more press was because A, he had that baby face. That could, was telegenic. It could be um, could could melt hearts around the world, and so people cared more than about others who don't make it to the press. And that combined with the fact that he had a very clever, savvy uh, family. His father is a brilliant guy who knew how to how to play it up in the Israeli press. His with his, was that his mother, his mother too, Noam and Shalit, and uh, they simply knew the system and made the most of it to campaign for the release of their sons, as one imagines any parent, if they had the talent of the Shalits, would do likewise. Um, but I point that out in the big scheme of things, not that I fault the Shalits, and your heart goes out to them, but what happened there is uh, also something that's worthy, uh, it's important to, to comment on, and it reflects another facet of modern Israel. Um, Israel was then under, for years, great pressure. I mean, there were billboards with uh, every day. There was a ticker showing how many days Gilad was in captivity. Um, and Israel ultimately negotiated his release in October of 2011 um, in exchange for, and this is significant, 1,027 Palestinian prisoners. By far, talk about not negotiating with uh, terrorists, apparently we're now in the world, everybody negotiates with terrorists. This is the largest Israel has ever, uh, release of terrorists that Israel's ever made, uh, including some of these fellows, some of them women too, were convicted of multiple murders, terror attacks, um, the statistics are, are in, the right wing assembles the statistics, they collectively were responsible for the murder of 569 Israelis, people who were released with the trading for Gilad Shalit. Some of the terrorists that just hit. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I'm about to get to that. Uh, I don't know if you followed. This is already in your lifetimes, but were you, did you follow the news when Gilad Shalit was released? Were your eyes dry after you saw the footage? Am I warrant? I mean, how could you, you know, you daven for him. I mean, you couldn't believe it when you saw him walking next to the prime minister. Of course, political photo op for the, for the prime minister, but... but he was free, and he could go back to his family and resume his life, and what a miracle, and, and 
it was mixed. Uh, you know, I, I, I was completely thrilled that he was out. And at the same time, what was the cost? You have massive crowds of Palestinians celebrating the deal, crying out for further abductions because it worked for them. And, and they've made many attempts because they see, wow, this kidnapped soldier business really is terribly effective. It's a win-win proposition. Uh, so how many more would, 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 would be out, all because of, all for Gilad Shalit? Why is not start killing the terrorists instead of just capturing them? It's a proposal out there, yeah. Everybody who's, who's caught being a terrorist, right, killed them on the spot. That's one of the, certainly a strategy of the right wing. Um, again, I'm not so political. I don't, think, I don't think these decisions will make that big of a difference one way or the other, but I could see the logic of that. It makes sense to me. Why not? You're at war right now. In war time, you have to do certain things. But uh, that's easier said than, than, than legislated. The, um, <coughs> the uh, one Jewish family of a terrorist victim, um, two murderers that were released were actually the murderers of their family members, uh, were so shocked and appalled that they traded Gilad Shalit for, the, for these murderers, that they offered a $100,000 reward to anyone who would kill them. They put a price on their head. When a, a Saudi cleric, who had a lot more money to play with, uh, heard about this, he responded by offering the same reward for anyone who would kidnap another Jewish soldier. And so it goes, around the bend. Um, then afterwards, a Saudi prince got into the fray and he offered uh, an additional $900,000, meaning a million dollars, just to abduct the Israeli soldier. That's not even talking about what could happen afterwards in training the Jewish soldier for all kinds of um, terrorists. Uh, as of October 2012, dozens of the released prisoners had gone back to their paramilitary activity, had resumed life as terrorists, attacking Jews. Um, they joined the leadership of Hamas. Uh, many were involved in firing rockets at population centers throughout Israel. They planted bombs, uh, and they attempted kidnapping Israeli soldiers. Um, Forty have been rearrested for violence, uh, for uh, fundraising for terror, and many a pace. You have more modern examples. I haven't, I haven't updated this particular piece in my research. What do you, what do you have that's more, more current? Well, the, the Shimon and Sadiq uh, stabbing. Yes. He was the brother of one of the people. Brother, that's not the same, okay. Because then, then you can't say you can't say that's the fault. He could have done that anyway. Right. A direct. And then option. one of the killers of the Harnouf shooting was was I don't think that's true. No, 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 that. no, no. Neither of them, neither of them were were had been had. They're both fairly young. I don't think they. I mean, I, I this is something easily fact checked, but I think that's incorrect. Check it out. I, I don't think that's it. right. I know that there was another attack that happened. Yes, uh, I think so too. I mean, this is 2002. What's the difference? The insights made. I mean, you trade you trade for terrorists, and what do you get? And and, and what I'm pointing to is that um, when you make these momentous earth-shattering kind of decisions about you release terrorists, you don't release terrorists, you're playing God. You're, 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 taking, uh, you're tackling massive questions, uh, really, really unleashing you know, into, into the world uh, you know, a whole a momentum of, of different forces. You don't know what's going to come out. It's good for the Jews or not good for the Jews. Now, as religious Jews, when we're about to take drastic steps, as we do, some of us even get married, which is fairly drastic. Some of us uh, decide to move to Eretz Israel, which is drastic. And, you know, to do big things in life, what do we know is the thing that you do when you don't really know how to make a decision because it's not clear-cut in the Shulchan Aruch? Yes, Gashayla. 
Ask a shayla, because when you ask a shayla from a competent posek and sometimes pedado, at least you know they have siyat dishmaya. At least you're, you're replacing yourself in a Kaddish Baruch Hu's hands. Not that the posek always knows the correct answer, but they have siyat dishmaya. When you don't ask a shayla, you don't have that siyat dishmaya. You just you're banking on your own wisdom, on your own you know good good decisions, which is anybody's guess. Now you have to realize in halacha. We have a beautiful, vast, voluminous uh, library on exactly this question, on redeeming captives. We've learned about it here in this class. Which famous captive, which famous Gadol Hador was taken into a castle and refused, history test, and refused to have them ransom himself because he knew that they would turn around and kidnap him all over again to squeeze the Jews of every last drop of money. Do you remember who it was? It was the end of the 1200s. Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg, of Rottenburg, whose student maybe is more famous to us, both of them were famous, but the, his student was the Rush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rabbi Asher, in the back of our Gemara. And the Rush disagreed with his Rebbe, was busy, was actually rounding up the ransom when after seven years of captivity, his Rebbe perished, died in the tower. And then they made even more money. Right, and then the Rush fled for his, his life, and he lived out the rest of his years. In, he was the Rebbe in Toledo, in Spain. But wasn't expensive hostage exchanges for his body, too? Oh, right, right, that's true. That was years later they finally got his body out. But we, we, there, we have a wisdom on the subject. We call it, the, the category is called Pidyon Shmoim, redeeming captives. And sometimes you do it, and sometimes you don't. In the case of Gilad Shalit, I, I don't know exactly the Pesach of the Gidolim, because it's complicated to take many factors. My guess and my understanding of the Sugi is that they would ask him, no, you cannot trade all these terrorists for Gilad Shalit. But regardless of how they would have passed yes, trade, don't trade. But if you'd have asked the Shaila, which is something, of course, the secular state would never do, but if you would have asked the Shaila, at least you'd have Siyat the Shmaya. At least you'd have the Baruch will be helping you through with the after effects of the event. Now we're just at our own devices. Now we have none of that. That's the state. That's I'm giving this. That's our situation as a secular state. It's not just the obvious cool Shabbos and the and the, the, the deconstruction of the Torah world and all the rest of that. It's these subtle inner workings that um, make our existence in this tiny perilous corner of the world very very difficult and an ongoing situation. Yeah. Were you ever able to trade? Uh Prisoners for prisoners? Sometimes. Again, you'd need a competent gadol to be able to sit down and, and factor through the issues at hand. Very, very complicated. And a lot of siyat Um Israeli officials currently believe that of all the issues confronting the Jewish state, the most existentially dangerous, I mentioned this recently, is, this is now at least, but I'll change, no, 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 Israel, in military terms, Iran. Oh, yeah. Iran, enrich, enriching uranium as they are, building nuclear weapons. Um, this is, they feel, the most critical, it's more critical now than even the situation Israelis faced in the 10 states before the Six-Day War, many feel this way. They feel that if Iran really does obtain nuclear weapons, its leaders uh, have been very clear, despite their double talk in the international press, that they will move to destroy the enemy. Uh, the enemy, of course, is Israel, it's America, it's, America. it's the Sunni Muslims, Iran being the, the major Shiite regime in the world, um, the minority. Uh, and they believe this to be the precursor to their version of redemption. So be careful of a religious war. Um, rational diplomacy will not get around their religious convictions. Most 
Iranian citizens and Iranian uh, Iranian uh, society is fairly. I mean, for the sanctions, at least, it was well-to-do uh, for the international sanctions. A fairly sophisticated people who uh, are, you know, many of them upper middle class and savvy of the modern world kind of a, kind of a population. I always get that impression, but that's, there is that aspect of, of Iran. But the same people who have college educations, whatever that means, um, actually support the, these programs, the military wing. You know that Iran is behind the Hezbollah, behind the Hamas, are the architects of much of the uh, damage done to Israel till today. It's not always appreciated. If there was no Iran, everything may be different. We may have had made peace settlements. Um, when confronted with the possibility of mutual annihilation, but if the Israelis strike first, or it's a whatever, whatever scenario, most Iranians would, would, would welcome it because they'd be guaranteed a, a great life in the hereafter. Um, they don't fear death because martyrs will be generously rewarded. Uh, there's a day every year where they have a fairly, they have a ceremony that involves wearing white garments and they pour, I don't think it's human blood, I think they shed some cows, but whatever it is, they pour blood on their white clothes and then scream, America, Israel. It's not subtle. Um, there have been extreme international sanctions. Um, it's broken down the country. It's led them to this situation where we find ourselves with the Americans about to offer them to, to, to break the sanctions. But um, all the UN. it hasn't broken their will. It's all the UN. It's, the, it's not just America, thank you. It's, it's the well, certainly the UN, but America backs it, which is more, which is more shocking. Um, and uh, probably they'll get around the, 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 the uh, supervision and they'll, at one point, be able to continue with their nuclear program. Uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, many people, of course, predict doomsday uh, with Iran. Um, that's not a Jewish perspective. Kodesh Baruch is running the world. We saw the fall. I saw in my own lifetime the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, it seemed like the Cold War was inevitable, that America and Russia would wipe each other out. And within a few months, the entire world real politic reorganized itself. And suddenly America emerged as the only superpower. It's, everything was different. As we've seen repeatedly through history, and, 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 anyway. Koldera, uh, everything everything's in the Kaj Baruch's hands, and he, he, he runs the show. So with all these predictions, we really don't know. Um, as, as to to um, conclude our, our, this particular unit, uh, I have a brief survey of terrorism, um, which is the modern scourge of warfare. Um, to a large degree, terrorism is an international prob problem that was, began, that was begun in the world in the 20th century because of the Israeli-Arab conflict. 9-11, brought to you by the Israelis, as some people like to, like to say it, but not so far off. If it wasn't for this conflict, the mode of attack, the, the intensive, uh, the radicalization of Islam, the mode of uh, attacking people um, might, might really look different. Today, it's all hypothetical. Um, of course, I remind you that um, all of this would have, could have been possible without a Jewish state. It's all speculative. How do we know what our position would be in the, in the post-Holocaust world without a state? But remember, it's part of the self-definition of the Zionist nation is that it's here to protect Jews everywhere, and they try. And I highly ironically, much of the damage against Jews in the world today is wrought because of the Jewish state. 
so that far from being a safe haven and protector of Jews everywhere, they're often the cause of the uh, terrorism to Jews everywhere in the world. Um, here's a partial list, and I find it, I don't know, I find it sobering to give an overview. I, remember, this is, this, is, um, this is just a sampling, just to give you a sense of where we've been and how um, international and broad this is and how they've terrorized the world and that Jews everywhere uh, have a different mentality being Jewish in the world, what that, what that means. Um, arguably, one of the first deadly terrorist attacks happened in 1968. The PFLP, the Palestinian Front for the Liberation of Palestine, members fired a machine gun at El Al Flight 253 in Athens, Greece. Uh, in this instance, one Israeli was killed, many were injured. So as far as uh, attacks go, it was small fry. Uh, not that every Jew that dies is, is, is significant to us. Um, of course that's true, but, um, but it's, it's the first event that looks like what we would identify as a terrorist attack. 1972, Arab terrorist murder, 11 members of Israel's Olympic team in Munich. This is well known, I assume this, this one. The blacks, yeah, this is this, this, this much you know. Um, the Mossad, after the 11 athletes were murdered, the Mossad, Israeli secret, um, secret force, assembled a target list of operatives from the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, and afterwards, across Europe, there was a wave of assassinations. This went on for 20 years. They went after the Munich um, architects. The problem, of course, is that some of the Arabs who were murdered were innocent and other known terrorists got away. So with all the celebration of the Mossad, it's uh, guilty, it's charged of uh, not exactly enacting justice and certainly hurting Israel's name in the international community. It, um, separate from, uh, from that, also in 1972, a black September letter bomb um, went off in the Israeli embassy in London, killing, uh, killing an Israeli. 1974, Another famous event, TWA flight 841 from Tel Aviv to New York was bombed by an Arab. It crashed into the Mediterranean and all 88 passengers and crew died. Uh, it's the first known suicide mission, 1974. 1980, a bomb, blast, a bomb blasted uh, and destroyed a Jewish-owned uh, Jewish hotel in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, called the Norfolk Hotel. 15 people were killed. Over 80 were wounded, that's down in Africa. Same year, 1980, on Arab Simpastera, a bomb went off outside of Paris Shul, four killed, 40 injured. 1981, um, I intend to kind of break you down with this. I mean, not intentionally, but there should be, there's a, there's a cumulative effect of hearing all of this, and I'm arguing against the terrible myopia. People don't realize where we've come in history. Every terrorist event is that that's the first thing, first time it was ever a terrorist in the world. Um, this is a long string. We have a long history um, of these events, um, and this is just an incredibly partial list. Um, 1981, also interestingly, right before Simchastera, a truck bomb exploded outside a Portuguese school. Um, excuse me, the Portuguese school in Belgium, in Antwerp, Belgium, a Sephardi school. In other words, three dead, 106 injured. 1982, um, two assailants from a group called Abu Nidal fired machine guns and threw a grenade into a Jewish restaurant in Paris. Six dead, 22 injured. 
Also, 1972, outside of Rome, Rome's great synagogue, Palestinians attack, a two-year-old is killed, 37 dead. 1985, the Hezbollah and together with Islamic Jihad terrorists hijack TWA flights. Um, similarly, again, Jews are separated. People with, oh, not just Jews. Anybody with the last name sounding Jewish is, there's a selectia, uh, and eventually one of them is killed. Um, two weeks later, the hostages were released uh, when they traded them for uh, a release of prisoners. Um, 1985, uh, the Achille Laurel luxury liner near Egypt was hijacked by four TFLP members, and um, shockingly, they threw the wheelchair-bound American Leon Kluck, uh, Klinkhofer overboard. Um, he's become a symbolic figure. I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, Palestinian activists have written an opera celebrating this terrorist event. You're not familiar with this? Go, 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 go reference it. It's shocking. 1986, Arab gunmen killed 22 Jews in Istanbul's Neve Shalom Shul. Um, I mean, it's all over the world. 1992, um, in Ankara, Turkey, an Israeli embassy security chief dies uh, in a car bomb attack set by the Islamic Jihad. Same year, 1992, Buenos Aires, very famous. A car bomb is detonated in Buenos Aires uh, by the Israeli embassy. 29 dead, 250 injured. Um, two years later, 1994, also Buenos Aires, this time the JCC was bombed, the Jewish Community Center. 87 dead, over 100 injured. Both of these attacks in Argen, in Argen, uh, that took place in uh, Argentina were later discovered to be executed by the Iranian-backed Hezbollah. Um, nobody's ever been convicted for either bombing. It remains a scandal in this last year's news. There was a fellow who was going to, a Jewish fellow, uh, who was going to press charges against many figures, including the current president of Argentina, for covering up for Iran and was uh, mysteriously assassinated in his, uh, in, in a way that, you don't know about this? Uh, Nisman was his name. Um, it's, it, it was a few months, a couple months ago, he was assassinated in his own apartment the day of the trial. And there won't be a trial because he, he had all the evidence. It's not conspiracy theory, theories here. I, I, this, this is, uh, these, are just, I, these are really, I'm just reading the facts. I think they paint, they paint a, very, a very stark picture. Um, 1994, a Palestinian immigrant opened fires on a van carrying Orthodox Jewish boys across a Brooklyn bi bi bridge. Uh, they killed the 16-year-old Ari Halberstam. I was at YU at the time, I remember that. Can't happen here in Brooklyn. 2002, Al-Qaeda militants kidnap and forcibly convert uh, an American Jew down the street from where I grew up, Daniel Pearl from Encino, California. He, he worked as the South Asian Bureau Chief in the, for the Wall Street Journal in Mumbai, India. And uh, he was kidnapped, converted, and then uh, decapitated. The video of his decapitation went viral on the internet. Uh, 2002, Al-Qaeda uh, uh, sent a truck bomb that exploded outside uh, the, um, the large shul in Tunisia. Uh, 19 dead, 30 injured. Also 2002, in Egypt, uh, excuse me, an Egyptian killed two at Los Angeles International Airport at the El Al counter. And again in 2002, car bomb 
Um, in, Ke in Kenya, uh, 15 killed. It was a place where uh, that was known that Israelis frequented there. Um, in the same location, two missiles missed an Israeli airliner as it was taking off. 2003, uh, two car bombs explode, excuse me, explode outside two synagogues in Istanbul, 24 people dead. 2003, Casablanca, Morocco, five suicide attacks against Jewish targets, uh, against the JCC, a cemetery, Jewish cemetery, a Jewish-owned Italian restaurant. Um, 45 people in Casablanca were dead, over 100 wounded. I'm almost done. 2004, in Uzbekistan, a suicide bomber with explosives strapped to his weight, detonated outside an Israeli embassy. Two, uh, two others were killed. 2006, an Arab entered the Federation of Greater Seattle and shot six women. One was, one was killed. 2008, Pakistani terrorists executed attacks across Mumbai, India. 164 were murdered. Over 300, um, over 300 uh, casualties, not just Jews, but one of the targets it deliberately selected was the Chabad house. Six Jews were killed there. You must have followed. This is already your lifetime. 2008, the, 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 the Chabad rabbi and his wife were murdered, and the, the, the heroic non-Jewish uh, um, uh, governess saved the boy's life. Their son was, 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 was rescued from this. 2012 outside a Jewish school in, called Otsar HaTorah in, um, in Toulouse, France. A Muslim shot and killed a rabbi and three Jewish children, school children. 2012, an Iranian-sponsored bomb killed six on a bus carrying Israeli tourists at the Bulgarian airport. You can run, you can't hide. 2012, 2014, uh, four were killed outside the Jewish Museum in Brussels. Um, a few months ago in January of 2015, Terrorists held hostages in a kosher market in Paris. Four Jews killed. Um, Israel's not at fault for any of the above. It's not that they're at fault. It's just hard to claim that the Jewish state has made the world safer for Jews everywhere. You could make the counter-argument fairly easily. Um, it's dangerous for Jews in the world. It always has been. Um, but it's exponentially more dangerous for Israelis. And Israelis feel it everywhere they go. They're targets. Um, and indeed, from the first intifada, 1987 to 1993, um, over 300 were murdered in terrorist attacks. 1993 to 2000, another 3,000 were murdered in terrorist attacks. From 2000 to 2005, 1,100 Jews were murdered in terrorist attacks. Um, you know, I just did a survey around the world, but to be in Israel is the most dangerous, the most fraught. Um, since then, there have been, there've been um, almost 200 murdered by terrorists. Uh, and again, as I, my, my ongoing thesis here, um, I don't see solutions in the political military area. We, we, uh, we, have, we have other work to do. On Sunday, we're going to um, learn about the last of the major gedolim who I'll be discussing uh, in the class and then talk about Torah today. Have a great Shabbos.